0: A la carte identity, 62 days of prayer, anti-Asian racism. Today on The Pursuit, Ray Chang. Welcome to The Pursuit, unfiltered conversations with faith leaders about their journey to pursue God. I'm your host, Richard Lee, and today my guest is Ray Chang. Ray is a pastor, writer, campus minister at Wheaton College, president of the AACC, the Asian American Christian Collaborative. You may have heard him speaking or read his writing on the issues of race, culture, and faith. has lived, worked, traveled to over 50 countries throughout the world, and he brings all of that diversity of experience into what he does and how he leads. But Ray says that one of the most formative times in his life was when he spent 62 days in Ray, actually the first time I met you, I hadn't realized actually that I read something you wrote years ago when you wrote an open letter to John Piper about Lecrae. oh yeah
1: I, it was it was uh it was a few years ago um, it's something that I wrote uh, in response to uh, Lecrae being on a Truth table podcast uh, saying that he was divorcing himself from white evangelicalism right right yeah and then we uh, uh I, I wrote the piece uh it, it got a lot of traction um, I got you know responses from not only all across the country but you know even across the world uh wow Talking about how uh, it ministered to so many people, uh, gave giving them language for the things that they were experiencing. Yeah, and I don't think I was necessarily saying anything new, but I think I was saying it in a way that. Fit the time, uh, fit the experiences, fit the moment. Yeah. I'm grateful for the way that God was use God used that uh, piece.
0: Yeah. So you and Piper are cool now?
1: Yeah. No. We we saw each other at a conference, and then he was at Wheaton College with his wife, and uh, we spent a couple hours just kind of sitting together talking about uh, ministry and life. Uh, And then his son, you know, Barnabas, who went to school with me, but we didn't know each other at the time. Mm -hmm. We connected about the letter as well, and uh, and he said he he appreciated the tone. And the uh, the content of it, and so I mean, my hope is that the letter ultimately serves the the church, especially the evangelical church, so that we can yeah. be more faithful in our witness uh, of of Christ, and to help draw more um, unity and uh, solidarity uh, amongst and across the different racial uh, lines and groups, and uh, and hopefully that uh, we can de racialize uh, by by tending to the needs of those in our midst. So tell me about
0: your uh, experience growing up. Were you born here in America?
1: Yeah, I was born in Chicago. uh, Lived in both the North Shore suburbs, so a predominantly Jewish area, and then in the South Side, where it was predominantly Black uh, and Hispanic. Well, I mean, for me, it's it, where I grew up is is a pretty complicated one because I I grew up in both the north side and the south side of Chicago. Yeah, I, I lived all over the Chicago land, and then you know, in junior high, right after junior high was over, I I moved to Korea, then Hawaii, then to California, and then you know, by by that time, I was you know, I'd gone to five, I'm going to five different high schools in four different kind of parts of the world. Five high schools. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, cause I moved around so much. My parents were, were business people. And so they moved us around quite a bit. Uh, so I lived in Guatemala for my, by, for one year by myself, but then all these other places, my parents kept moving us around until they landed in California where they are today.
0: So you grew up in all these different places and all these different countries and all these different cultures. How did that affect your Idea of self identity growing up.
1: That's a great question. Um, it's hard, right? Because yeah. my parents were immigrants. Uh, they they migrated here from from Korea. My dad my dad is a first gen. My mom is a one point five gen, uh, which basically means she came early enough for her to kind of get accustomed and acculturated to uh, the United States. Um, whereas my dad came in his kind of mid twenties. But for me, because they worked like 14 hour days. Right. Right. In order to, to kind of get, a, get, get established in the United States, you know, they, they took big risks, you know, started yeah. restaurants and then, um, and, and we working all the time. And so I really didn't have adult conversation partners. My, my conversation partners were either my sister, the, the kids at school or my teachers uh-huh. who, were majority white, right? I mean, like I I went to a majority white school for the majority of my life uh-huh. uh, growing up, and uh, I, I remember there were only like three or five kind of Asians, and so we didn't have many conversations around what it meant to be Asian. All I remember was feeling like they, we had a certain pride about being, you know, Asian. There's you know, there's a word in Korean called chung where we just kind of had this affinity to each other, Uh but then we were also like kind of distancing ourselves from one another at the same time, (laughs) right? Right? So it's like, you don't want to be lumped in together with all the Asians because you know that, and you don't even know this consciously, you kind of know it subconsciously that it's going to lead to ridicule. Right. And so you you kind of do the head nod, you know, or you kind of like (laughs) acknowledge each other, Um, but then you don't really want to be seen with each other. And I didn't really recognize that or know that. And I didn't have anyone to talk to uh, talk, talk about it with. And so yeah. um, my identity was, was really difficult to kind of, uh, navigate. Uh, and you know, the individual identity can't be separated from a collective identity, Mm -hmm. especially in a racialized society. Yeah, And so I didn't really know what it meant to be Asian American until like I was reading scholarship on what it meant to be Asian American. And I was like, well into my twenties.
0: I was going to say that's, that's not high school. Come on.
1: (laughs) No, no, no. But I was probably confused about what it meant to be Asian American all the way until my twenties, yeah. right? Because I knew certain things, and a lot of times the things that I kind of adopted were like the stereotypical things or the things that you saw on you know movies or Korean dramas. And I even lived in Korea for for a couple of years, and so there was a part of like the Korean culture that was uh, that was within me. But I always kind of had them in two separate bins within my own person. Right. So I had a, the Korean side, then the American side, but I realized that my Korean American side had no category to fit within.
0: Yeah. It's almost like an a la carte identity. Mm -hmm. Um, like in whatever context you find yourself, whichever identity you feel like is most advantageous for you to align yourself with, like I'm, I'm American or I'm Korean or I'm Asian or I'm white, you know, like that sort of a thing. Like, try to assimilate into whatever is sort of the path of most acceptance.
1: That's exactly right. I mean, I think most people are just looking for belonging, right? Right. But they're looking for a belonging where they can fully show up, where they don't have to hide parts of themselves that God has kind of wired them with or or deposited into them. And, you know, we we see in the book of Revelation that it's it's uh, you know, every tribe, nation, tongue, and people group come together, not just one tribe, one one tongue, one people group, and one nation. Right, and yet because of the way that race works, it almost feels like we have to become like the dominant racial culture in order to fit within the kingdom of God. And I think that that kind of grieves the heart of God.
0: So, when you went to college, where did you go?
1: So I went to a, I went to a junior college for for two years um, because I had moved around so much. Uh, in high school, I was just like, I don't want to do any more school. I don't want to go through another transition. It was it was so difficult uh, that I didn't want to go through another one. Yeah. But then I, you know, my friends were like, you should at least go to take some classes. And so I just kind of went to a junior college full time and felt like, oh, you know, schooling actually fits with kind of uh, what I'm interested in. I like learning. I like to to study.
0: Oh, you didn't want to go to college at all?
1: I didn't want to go to college at that point. I was so tired of tra- again. Moving from one place to another yeah. five times in four years was yeah. a lot. Mm. I mean, it was exhausting. Uh, and so you have to start. It's not just like you're you're moving locations by you know packing up your things and going to another place. You're also like making new friends. You're also trying to like reinvent yourself. You're trying to figure out okay who did I like yeah. being in the last place, and then who do I want to continue being uh, from the last place, and then who do I want to be you know moving forward. And a lot of that, without me knowing, actually was effect uh, was shaped by uh, how I was racialized, right? How I was treated simply because of my race and ethnicity. Wow. And so I remember constantly like uh, adjusting myself to fit in when I was in high school, uh, hiding more of my Korean Americanness when I was going into more predominantly white spaces, and then becoming more Korean American when I was going to more kind of diverse and uh, multi ethnic spaces.
0: Wow. That's a lot to 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 bear as a teenager,
1: I think so too. I mean, but the, the the hard thing is I had no one to talk about it with, so I had to do some like retroactive processing. In order to understand what my own experiences were, so you take two years at junior college, and and then what? And then I transferred to Wheaton, uh, and then that's where I finished my undergraduate degree. And then uh, I worked at a bunch of different places afterwards, um, and I currently work at Wheaton in the in the chaplain's office uh, as like a, as a campus minister. Mm-hmm. But then I, I I did the Peace Corps after in Panama. I worked for a couple of nonprofits. One was a uh, you know what was was dealing with Korean American issues. I worked for. A real estate technology startup uh, moved back to Korea to try some different things, and then ended up back in LA, where I felt like uh, for for about two months I I was just called to pray, and so it was a uh, 62 days of prayer, and I was just kind of living in one of my my parents' uh, rooms for for 62 days in my mid 20s, uh, spent some time praying, and it was then that uh, a lot of heart work was done uh, by God to to get me more in line with Him. Uh, and I felt like there was a a re uh, kind of a, a revisiting of kind of earlier conversations I had with God, commitments I made to God, uh, callings that I sensed from God uh, to pursue a form of vocational ministry. And so that's when I chose to go to seminary at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and then have been on that track uh, and been in ministry ever since.
0: Yeah. So what prompted the sixty day, sixty two day? Prayer time
1: yeah, so I was living in Korea at the time and uh kind of feeling lost vocationally uh, and so I was pursuing uh work in investment banking in Korea because my cousin was uh was an investment banker out there and said I should come out and 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 explore the field uh since he thought that i would I would be pretty good at it mm. and so that's that's when I moved out there, but for me, it just didn't feel like that was where God was calling me into and i think a part of that was because i was looking for security and uh in my career in my status in in things that were much more worldly than god would uh want me to be pursuing right uh and so i think it was for for, for that particular season it was much more around my heart than what i was actually doing yeah. and i said okay you know what i got to go back to the states and you know i got to kind of press the reset button and fortunately I you know like my parents had a house that was big enough for me to be able to live with them and all this other stuff right and was able to feed me and 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 uh and house me and that's when I started six i said god for sixty two days I'm going to pray and I, i'm I'm asking you for clarity and 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 I just remember like it was such a difficult time praying I had such a hard time praying for even five minutes a day for probably like yeah. two weeks straight but I said I'm gonna get on my knees and just pray yeah but then a- after I I, I I kept at it for about two weeks. My prayer started flowing a little more and a little more to the point that at the end of my like 60 days, I was praying like four or five hours a day. Man, wow. It was probably the richest, and most intimate time of fellowship I had with God in all of my life.
0: You know, some of the things that I'm hearing in your story is that, you know, you moved around a lot. Um, and then when you, uh, graduated to college, you, you went into a bunch of different industries. And so there's like a lot of, a lot of hopping around and a lot of choosing new paths or new paths, choosing you and people that know you and people that see you, like you have a pretty happy disposition, (laughs) But I think that there's a a sense in which I think a lot of people that went through so much of the movement and tumult that you went through growing up and even in like your your early on in your career, that they would just be, they'd be angry, they'd be bitter, they'd be miserable, they'd be, you know, you know, hard to be around, but, but you're like a delightful personality and you have this (laughs) delightful disposition. Like how, how, how did that all work?
1: I have no idea um, because I think there is a part of it that, you know, like psychologists would say that I, I dissociate. And so there's a part of me that I still feel like I'm excavating, like the wounds that I haven't, I haven't really like dug into. Yeah, And I think there's, so I, I do think that the, there's a part of the, the, the happiness or the, or as you call it, the delightfulness <laughs> is genuine. I think it's genuine to who sure. I am. I remember when I was a kid, I, I just love to love life. Mm. I loved people. I loved kind of uh, all that was around. I was fascinated by things. I was very curious as a kid. And I was what, you know, Koreans would call a jangnanggurugi, right? Uh, What do you call it? Uh, A rascal, I think it's what you would call it in English. (laughs) But on the other hand, I do think that there is a part of it uh, where I just kind of stuffed down the pain Mm. and stuffed down the wounds so I don't have to confront it. Mm. So that I could just be a positive guy. So I could just be a happy guy. So I could just be kind of like, present my joyfulness in front of other people instead of presenting the sorrow, right? I mean, like, I totally understand that my parents had to make tremendous sacrifices in order to uh, provide for us, right? Working 14 to 16 hours a day, you know, not being able to pick us up on time because uh, the restaurant got busy exactly when they were supposed to come pick us up, Uh, not being able to go on family vacations because, you know, uh, Chinese restaurants and Asian restaurants. You know, we're Korean, but we we own Chinese restaurant. Mm. Uh, we own a Chinese restaurant because people didn't know what Korean food really was <laughs> at the time, right? Right, right. And my parents were just trying to survive. They were just trying to make the sacrifices that they needed to make, and they felt like uh, we're kind of being asked of them in order to provide opportunities for my sister and I to succeed later in the future. Yeah. But it does come at a cost. These sacrifices they came at a, a significant cost. Um, where I think there's probably emotional uh, wounds that still need to be tended to. I'm probably stunted in some way emotionally. That, <laughs> and, and I think there's a reason why it, it becomes so much harder for me, I think, to talk about some difficult things that pertain to me, mm. right? Which is why I'm really good at talking about other people and helping other people, right. talking about things external to myself, but not good at talking about things internal to myself Because it just becomes like uh, too scary or too confusing or too, uh, too painful to even navigate, Uh, which is why I'm so glad that, you know, that there are, you know, counselors out there and and therapists uh, who help you navigate through this stuff, Uh, because, you know, part of that, you know, comes from family wounds. Uh, other parts come from, you know, generational issues. Other parts come from your own personal experiences, but other things come from, the, you know, the fact that racialization has taken a toll on a lot of communities of color, and we don't even know what that toll fully is. And so, when we experience forms of racism, those things actually hurt us, and they're not just like stickers that you can just take off of yourself. You actually have to work through them. You know, get the gospel's healing message into them but then also understand what's led to those things in your in your own life.
0: So you've told us a little bit about the journey that you've had physically, like moving around a lot and vocationally. What was your journey spiritually?
1: Yeah, so I think I, I haven't met anyone else that has a similar kind of faith ancestry if you want to call it that. So my mom and my dad, you know, are are I, I think sixth and seventh generation Christians. Or I'm a sixth and seventh generation, they're fifth and sixth generation Christian. Wow. That's pretty uncommon uh within kind of the Korean within Korean history uh, to see especially Korean American history. Yeah. Um and so I th- I think that there's a there's an element that we have a rich spiritual heritage. Um but as as I always tell my students, you know, like you also have to take ownership over your own faith at some point. And Mm -hmm. usually in college, you know, or when you first leave the house and you become quote unquote more independent, uh, I think for me, I remember when I was probably like seven years old, seven, eight or nine, my parents uh, owned uh, a deli in Evanston. So, you know, my parents had multiple restaurants and one was a deli in, in Evanston, not too far from Northwestern University. Uh-huh. And every weekend I would go in with them to the deli. Uh-huh. But on our way there, I remember my mom was listening to a Christian radio station and and there was this uh, kind of like this old school a choral hymn being sung. I don't remember what the song was, but I just remember that it just touched me so deeply. Yeah. And so I had known church all my life, but this is the first time I felt like the Holy Spirit was ministering to me directly. Wow. And I just remember crying for about two hours to the point that my mom couldn't open the store. Like she was like, I have a kid that's out of control because he's bawling. I would snot wow. flying all over the place. You know, like tears were just streaming down. It was this like peaceful crying. It was almost this like release saying, mm-hmm. you know, where I felt like God would say, I see you, I know you, I love you, I care about you, I'm with you. Man, how old were you at this point? Probably seven or nine years old oh my goodness wow but I just remind, like again I, I think you know on top of my like kind of my, my rascal disposition yeah. I also had a very tender heart towards God and a, and a kind of sensitive uh, disposition a delightful disposition <laughs> <A> delightful disposition <laughs> but like you know a, a, like a tender disposition towards like people that are hurting right because yeah. I think subconsciously I knew how lonely I felt you know uh, growing up especially as uh, my parents couldn't be there uh, at home with me all the time Yeah. And and then you know i had you know followed the the kind of a, a the typical journey for as many korean american christians uh, kind of have followed where you know you you obey uh Behavior, but your heart doesn't necessarily follow your behaviors. Yeah. And then, like, at, at some point, I just was like, I, I was always known, like, since junior high and high school in various places. uh Like, my friends would call me Pastor Ray. Really? Yeah. And, and I think most of that was because I was more, much more legalistic and uh, <laughs> rule oriented. Hey, do this, live like this. And I, I didn't mind telling people how they should live right. in, in obedience to God. But I also think that people knew that I genuinely cared about them and I genuinely, you know cared about what, yeah. what God cared about. And so even in my, my pharisaical uh, kind of disposition, <laughs> I think people have a sense that I, you know, I love God, I love them, and I wanted what was best for them, even though a part of that was probably driven by some weird, whacked out theology right. that wasn't fully developed. And so like in, in junior high and high school, you know, I, I people would regularly call me that. And then uh, I would try to move away from the whole notion of pursuing ministry. and so. I, in college, I I started liking the idea of becoming the elder at a church who didn't have any financial worries, who didn't have any stress in their life, right. who could generously give, <laughs> right. uh, not have to worry about a thing, uh, and then provide for um, for you know the the youth youth kids when you know they needed the extra fundraising boost. You know, help supply the church with the building. Oh, <laughs> well, you really had this thought out. I, I had it thought out when I was, this was like in college. And I was like, I want to be the rich yeah. elder uh, that can just be generous yeah. towards everyone and then never experience hardship of myself for myself. Right, right. Right? Because I had seen what my parents had gone through. Yeah. I had seen what other, you know, other other family friends had gone through. And I liked the idea of not stressing out about money. And so that's when I started kind of veering away from what I kind of felt like was a stronger commitment to vocational ministry mm-hmm. to pursue things in the business or in the non kind of quote unquote vocational ministry realm. And that kind of led me down a winding path where, you know, I was Doing a whole bunch of different jobs at different places. But at every point, I felt like God was saying, you know, whenever I did another job, I said, like, God was telling me, this is not it for you. 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 This is not what I have for you. But I'm going to let you learn through all of this and, and gain what you need to gain. In order for me to be able to redeem all of your experiences in the future, yeah. And so I think at some point, you know, like when I I, I pursued seminary and then started going, at 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 some point I felt like God was saying, no, this is the reset. And it was those 62 days of prayer where God was kind of recalling me back to uh, pursue kind of the commitment that I had made to Him, the calling that I felt from Him. And and I'm and I'm not saying that if you made a commitment to God. Uh, when you were younger and you're not fulfilling that that God is somehow gonna like drag you back yeah you know he 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 's gracious he 's bigger than us, he knows where our hearts are, he knows where our mm-hmm. you know where we are in our own journeys uh and our faith journeys with him, but at the same time, I felt like for me there was a there was a deeper calling that God was calling me into for for quite some time, and I was avoiding it and and those sixty two days were very clarifying for me so
0: um, you go into vocational ministry, and that's as a pastor at first.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I did youth ministry, and you know, in my early twenties, uh, on top of other things that I was doing. Okay, and so that was a part-time role in California, uh, and then I I worked at a church uh, on the pastoral staff, and then I I got a job at. Uh, Wheaton, where I'm currently serving as like a campus minister. Um, tell us about your role at Wheaton. So I oversee the discipleship efforts at the college, um, and so I have the privilege of being able to basically oversee a, a small group ministry that has probably between a third to half of the campus participating in it. Um, but I, I oversee three small group ministries. So it's kind of like... Um, like I'm like a community life pastor. Okay. But then I also preach in chapel, uh, do a lot of pastoral counseling and sure. convers- You know, have a lot of pastoral conversations. And then I'll serve an institutional uh, kind of task forces like the evangelism task force and the diversity task force.
0: Ray, recently, I think increasingly, uh, your voice has really been a voice for the Asian American community that has given articulation uh, and words to some of the pain that we have faced in this society in history. But also even just mo- most recently through this COVID crisis with the anti-Asian uh, racism that has been uh, going on. How have you sort of become that voice, and and how prepared do you feel uh, to be that voice?
1: Well, I don't know if I'm prepared to be that voice, but I think it's, <laughs> and I don't think I'm the only voice. Of course, right? right? I, and I hope I'm not the only voice. I know are other, other people that are speaking up on issues that are really near and dear to the heart of God. But I think you know, like I, I look back at my own life and my own history, and you know, since I was little, I would always care. Uh, And have a kind of like a special disposition towards those who are marginalized or Mm. overlooked or on the outside or were kind of excluded or kind of pushed away. Uh, to the point that I think even when I was growing up, my parents, my mom would always tell me that if we ever encountered someone that who that looked like they were in need, you know, maybe like a homeless person, I would just empty out my pockets and give them whatever I had, <laughs> right? And so I, I don't know where that came from. I, I think it was just like a kind of a disposition of generosity that God gave within that God gave to me when I was a little kid, especially for those who. Um, were in in kind of like greater need mm. and i think that kind of that lens of looking uh to those who are excluded looking to those who are marginalized looking to those who are uh kind of cast out or or pushed out or overlooked has kind of been a theme in my own life in part because of my own experiences of having to move so many times and being the outsider that wants to go in right it takes a lot of energy mm. to like make friends and to connect with people and and to know that you're and, and especially when you're younger you know when you're on the outside trying to work your way in you know that there are memories that groups of friends have shared together that you you haven't and uh you know that you're not necessarily the one that's preferred among you know the whole group uh when people are getting together and there's you know four spaces in a car and you might be the fifth person or the sixth person right <laughs> Um, and so, you know, because of those experiences in my own life, yeah. I think that disposition has always kind of been within me. But in terms of like how, how I moved into the issues of, yeah. uh, of kind of addressing race from a Christian perspective, I think it was because I've lived, I lived in so many different places, right? I lived in yeah. Korea, Hawaii, California, Guatemala, Panama, Spain, China. Right. And one of the things I started regularly hearing, whether it was because I was like speaking at different places or uh connect reconnecting with friends from different places or visiting and traveling uh, was this consistent theme around how Asian Americans experienced uh usually predominantly white spaces yeah. and it was, con- it was it was consistent with my own experience right uh like I grew up in in a in a variety of different settings uh I grew up in all these different places I lived all over the world and i think personally for me the places that were hardest for me to feel like I was a full member, mm. uh, whatever community, were in white evangelical spaces. Hmm. And I don't think that anyone intends to make it like sure. this, right? There's no intention to like make this a more exclusionary space. Right. It's not malicious. No, it's never malicious, right? It's like, I think everyone has the intention to like make this a more inclusive space. Sure. But I think there are key dispositions, key ways of thinking about the world, key ways of understanding power. And and, um, structures, uh, and, and even culture and how culture is shaped and made, uh, that, that lead to, uh, a sense of not belonging and a sense of exclusion that that's felt by people of color broadly and, uh, more specific and, and specifically because we're Asian American, we're more, and we're Korean American, Korean American. Right. Right. And, and a lot of times it's, uh, you know like people don't automatically recognize it when they're young like i i didn't i i couldn't name it i couldn't recognize it i just felt like i was the problem and i needed to do a better job of fitting in i needed to do more uh work in changing myself uh-huh. in order to belong but what i realized was that the environment was not an inclusive environment the environment was not a welcoming environment right because of the the dispositions that people held that again weren't necessarily tied to intent but more closely to worldviews that were tied to a racialized whiteness more than a gospel theology.
0: I think one of the challenges of being a voice for a group, a wide group of people, is trying to be able to be a good representative of people that have different experiences in different contexts and be able to articulate them and own their perspective well. And when I think about your upbringing, I think about all the different contexts That you grew up in. You know, you spent time in Korea and in, in Hawaii and all around the world, and you've seen and experienced these different contexts. And so, in some ways, I feel like you had an accelerated exposure to such a wide array of experiences that helps prepare you for this moment to be a voice that can articulate people's own cathartic and personal experiences. From their own perspective and experiences because in some ways like you've related to them all in some way or another in some (laughs) microscopic way for a period of time you felt the same way yeah
1: and i think that's kind of my pastor's heart right i think right you know pastors have to care about the people in their uh in the in their care they have to they have to put themselves in people's shoes we can't just take hey climb up the stairs to where i am Mm. right wherever that might be, right? you know, wherever we think that God calls them to be, but we have to go to where they are. And I think that's kind of the, the primary disposition that's been, uh, kind of adopted, uh, as I experience the kind of outsider-ness, like I've always wanted people to just come to where I am and sit with me right? and just be with me. And I, I, you know, and in, in a lot of these different spaces, especially in, you know, what I would call white evangelical spaces, it was always if you don't come to where I am, then you don't you know that like you don't really have a place here. you don't have a place right. not at the table, you don't have a place not at the room right. uh, I do think that there's an element in which i I have had to learn you know how to speak in multiple kind of yeah. languages per se you know like it, it, to to navigate the different landscapes. Like, sure. You know, I, 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 I consider myself an evangelical. You know, I, <laughs> I, I love scripture. Yeah. You know, I, I love, uh, you know, I, I, I love what what God calls us to. I love, I, you know, I love the gospel of Jesus Christ, and and it's because of that love that I feel like uh, a part of the work and energy that I spend doing is is in educating and discipling people. Who are part of uh, the dominant white culture and society, uh, especially the dominant white church, to understand that these are very real things that affect uh, believers all across the country and potentially all around the world. And in order to be a faithful witness, we have to be willing to address these things, not ignoring them as if they don't exist. Yeah. And then with for other people of color, and and I, and I try to have uh, like a broad array of friendships, uh, but also. My vision is always driven by the Kingdom of God uh-huh. and so i I constantly go to this the sense of this multi-ethnic multicultural multilingual uh, community that's gathering uh, and so i I care deeply about not only what happens with Asian Americans and Korean Americans but also what happens with African sure. Americans and Native Americans and Latino Americans of course and because of my experiences like you know as a Korean, I lived in a predominantly black neighborhood for a couple of years growing up uh-huh. uh, of course, I didn't understand how the how racialization worked, right? I didn't understand that, mm. that we were pitted against each other, uh, that our communities were pitted against each other, which is why there was so much suspicion around my parents moving a business into a predominantly black neighborhood, right? right? right. There's a whole history of that. Sure. And a lot of that is due to, uh, and, and a lot of the tensions are due to the way that the the racial structures have been set up so that Asians and black people and Asians and Latinos and blacks and Latinos and every other community kind of work against each other, not work with each other. Mm. You know, I lived in Guatemala, you know, and, you know, I, and because I lived in Guatemala, like there's a part of me that feels like, you know, I resonate with Chapins, right? Where we're Guatemalans are Chapins. Or, uh-huh. And so I, I resonate with the Central American kind of ethos and 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 love the the joy that comes through those communities. And, and I've learned from, uh-huh. from that, you know, when I lived in Panama, the same thing. I, I learned how to celebrate life in its most simplest ways and, you know and living in hawaii that shaped how i navigated um, and understood the the distinctions uh or the uniqueness of uh of all of the uh the pacific islander groups you know and, right. and and the richest of the ways that uh their cultures and their heritages uh kind of bring out especially you know when it's aligned with uh with with what god is calling them to and, and aligned with 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 the faith in jesus how it brings out more robustly our our collective faith. And so, yeah, yeah so I, I think that there's a part of me that feels like because of all the different places that I've lived, I've been able to uh, make those pieces a part of me, not in a kind of a cannibalistic way, but in an honoring way. And yeah. I think that, you know, like when we travel, we often become cannibals of culture, mm. right? We just consume culture yeah. and we don't like, we don't actually appreciate it and kind of allow ourselves to be immersed in it. Uh, we only take certain things from it in a way that uh, that benefits us, and I think we lose a lot when we when we do that as we travel. But yeah. you know, one of the dispositions I think I've learned was to to kind of immerse myself, uh, kind of bathe in in cultural expressions, especially when I meet other believers uh, in Christ to to see how they express their faith in and through and uh, with their culture, and how that makes makes my own faith all the more richer.
0: So now, Ray, actually, you're the president of the AACC, the Asian American Christian Collaborative. Um, tell us a little bit about that. And, you know, if anybody's listening that wants to, I know you guys have a statement, want to sign the statement, like why we should.
1: Yeah. Um, so a, a little while ago, I think it has been like two or three months now, two months, uh, we wrote a, a statement on, the, on anti-Asian racism in the time of COVID-19 as we were Seeing the uh, overt racism against mm. Asians uh, rise, which is basically a, a surfacing of attitudes, uh, beliefs, uh, ideas about Asian Americans uh, that have cons- consistently existed. but you know in right. you know, if you look at history, in moments where we are scapegoated or we are targeted, you know, overt racism oftentimes in the form of violence uh, across the country actually, takes place, which is why when we started seeing, um, national leaders start calling it the Chinese virus and, yeah. and media outlets starting to call it Kung flu. Yeah. We became very concerned that, uh, this would eventually lead to violence, which it event, which it did. Yeah. And, uh, and as, as we were watching and tracking with a friend of ours and who's, a uh, who's also uh, one of the advisory council members of, uh, the Asian American Christian collaborative, Russell Jung, uh, a professor at San Francisco state okay. university, uh, he recorded that uh, over a thousand cases uh, were uh, self-reported on anti-asian racism yeah, I saw that. Uh, in like the first month of of this uh, reporting uh, uh, form uh, being released and you know they ranged from people being kind of yelled at, chased down the street, spit on to, you know, families yeah. being, you know, stabbed and slashed, um, acid being thrown on people, you know, for taking out the trash. Yeah. And, um, and we really were like, okay, Christians need to say something about this. They're, they're, mm. This is an assault on the image of God, uh, image bearers who, uh, are of, uh, Asian descent. And so we, what we wanted to do as Christians was to say, we, we want to educate and form people out of this so that at least the church isn't uh, perpetuating any of the violence that we're seeing. Right. And that the church actually has something meaningful to say on issues of anti-Asian racism, but also issues of uh, of justice that uh, flows from the heart of God as well. And so yeah. uh, we wrote the statement um, and it, it surprisingly gained a lot of traction uh, really quickly. We had sure. a, a, a lot of Asian-American uh, Christians, leaders, and friends of the Asian-American Community uh, all signed their names to to so that we had over like ten thousand signatures within the first month, and then uh, we also had a bunch of institutional sign you know signers. So we had people mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. Uh, Mark Labberton from Fuller, uh, the presidents of. Uh, of Princeton Seminary, of Gordon Conwell, World uh, World Relief, Intervarsity, yeah, you know, so we had a bunch of different institutional signatories. Which people can go online to www.asianamericanchristiancollaborative.com American dot com and see who signed the signatures. They can. There's even a search function where you can see if someone yeah. signed or didn't sign. And, and, it, and it, you know, and so we kind of added that as a, as a unique feature. See if, you, you know, find your friends. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so, so our hope was that it would be used by the church uh, and by Christians, and that it would also make a statement from a Christian perspective to the world that, that we have something meaningful to say about the, the racism that we're seeing. And the, the best stories that we've been hearing are, are stories of people from churches small and large to, mm-hmm. to take these to their leadership. To share these in their small group, yeah. uh, one church uh, took it to their elder board and their elder board released a whole statement in a very, very uh, kind of homogenous area where they only have like a handful of Asian Americans that live there. Yeah. But they were like, if this happens to just one person uh, from our uh, from a member of our own community, we want to be able to stop it. Wow,
0: right? that's great.
1: So it's, it's a formational tool. We want to form their minds. And then we also heard a lot of people uh, use it to kind of inform their preaching in the weeks following uh, from, yeah. from churches that many people would recognize, especially if you're in the evangelical world, to churches that, that are relatively uh, off the beaten path. And so we've been really grateful for the, for the response and the way that people have used the statement.
0: Ray is the type of guy who sees an injustice being done to a group of people. And not only speaks out against it, but also, along with others, creates an organization, writes a statement, then gets over 10,000 people to sign and share that statement. Ray's journey to where he is now took him all over the world and back, and put him in places where he had to navigate situations thoughtfully and carefully. And now he's able to use all that to help thousands and thousands of others. I will put a link to the AACC website in the show notes and you should go and you should sign that statement while you're there. You can find Ray on Instagram at raychang502 and Twitter at @tweetraychang. And while you're there you can find The Pursuit at The Pursuit Cast. Follow, like, leave a comment and say hi. Now as we go, remember you may not know where your journey ends, but you can find God all along. The You guys didn't like arm wrestle to like settle it once and for all.
1: No, I mean, he, he probably would have been able to out pray me, but I'm pretty sure I would have beat him <laughs> in arm wrestling. <laughs> <laughs>